This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller. The Miller Report is a weekly podcast sponsored by WABC. We talk to business leaders about real estate because real estate is the single most important investment anyone could make in their lifetime. I've had so many fantastic guests on this show. The who's who of real estate, chefs, chairmen. Today, we're going to talk to who I consider the leader, the leader in commercial real estate worldwide. He was the president and CEO of Cushman and Wakefield. He, during his five-year leadership at Cushman, he increased sales from $800 million to $2.1 billion. Everybody hear that? From 800 million to 2.1 billion. Well, that's a lot. Bruce's clients are companies such as JP Morgan, NYU, Citigroup, MetLife, the Brooklyn Nets. I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot and he will tell us. Welcome Bruce Mosler to the Miller Report. So great to be with you. Thank you. Bruce, before I talk about real estate, because before I do every show, I try, I get the background on everybody. And there's two things that really stand out about you that I I have, I have questions about. First of all, your affinity for the veterans, like where did that come from? So I was very fortunate that as a young man, a gentleman by the name of Zach Fisher, who brought the Intrepid to New York, she was scheduled to be scrapped, um, but he had the vision to bring uh, the Intrepid to New York Formed the Intrepid Museum and in early days, I think somewhere around 85 or 86, he approached me and he said, what do you do outside of your day job? And I said, not enough. And he said, agreed. So come and see what we do on the Intrepid. And he educated me on the importance of supporting our veterans. Now, my father was a veteran as well, so I think some of that was in Ah, that was but the question because I looked at you My weren't. father served in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his um, great disappointments was that as I applied to college, um, I, I did not – um, follow through on my application at West Point and ended up at Duke. Now, of course, he was a Princeton man, so you can understand his chagrin when I went to Duke. Not too shabby, though. It was okay. Uh-huh. So that began my affinity and knowledge and understanding of that what we get to do each day to live in freedom is a result of those who've made the sacrifices in, before us. So being that you're a business person and you do have this affinity for the veterans, what do you think the business community could do better to admire and to honor the veterans? I think the business community is improving every day. We have come so far from where we didn't understand how veterans can be the backbone of your business to understanding today that they are fantastic when it comes to leadership, collaboration, working under pressure. And at the end of the day, the skill set that they bring is essential to just good business practice. So businesses are adapting. They are now, many businesses have formed veteran initiative programs. Uh, And I'm proud to say that we were at the forefront of that when now almost a decade decade ago, uh, we began with with J.P. Morgan with 100,000 Jobs Mission. Oh, I love that. That's so great. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. So again, before we talk about real estate, something else I found out about you is that you wrote a book. My mom (laughs) talk, you see? I'm making you blush. (laughs) You are. You are. I would hardly call it a book. What it was was a group of essays and a picture. Uh, I call it a, a... a, a, a bunch of pictures that resonated for me uh, with the 
25 or 30 years of fishing I've done off the coast of Montauk. Mm. I consider Montauk one of the unique jewels in the world. It is the beaches are amongst the best in the world. But the, the beauty of Montauk is in the diversity of people that go there. It's mm. you have your local residents who have been there forever. You have tourists who come. You have um, millionaires and billionaires who have their homes. And then you have the trailers that for $14 a day for a week, you can park yourself on the beach. Excuse um, me to, for interrupting you, but I was on Fox talking about those trailers and one was sold for a million dollars. And I love it because all of those folks come together to form the nucleus of what is the, the group of people that inhabit Montauk, yeah. some temporarily, some permanently, but it, it's gorgeous. And I love I love that diversity. And the proceeds went to the Fisher House Foundation, yes. which is part of this veterans. So Fisher Houses are unique. Ken Fisher is the chairman mm-hmm. and his family uh, founded Fisher House. And it is where we move our veterans in there on every military base around the country, around the world, and in several other um London, for instance, or I should say the UK is is was a departure um, because it's it's it represented a very international um, approach. But Fisher houses move wounded veterans in together with their families oh, wow. to get treatment and healthcare. And we know for a fact that when our wounded um, are accompanied by their family, that they heal better, faster, and have a support system that otherwise they wouldn't have. I love that. So now let's talk about real estate. Yes, about ma'am. a month ago, I had one of your contemporaries, Dale Schlather, on the show, and we talked about the difference between the Class A and the Class B buildings. And he was saying that the Class A buildings are getting like astronomical rents while the B buildings are suffering. That was about a month ago. Where are we today? I think Dale um, was spot on. I think we are still in a very bifurcated market. By bifurcated, I mean we've seen a flight to quality. That Mm -hmm. flight to quality means that people recognize in this moment that they can trade up. But let's define what we mean by Class A and where people are going. They're going to assets. They can be existing trophy assets, existing quality assets, as long as they've been invested in and they carry the amenity space that people are seeking today, that they have collaboration space that people are seeking, green space, these are all things. An invested in asset will lease. If you can't invest, you're going to have a difficult time providing what the workforce demands today. In the war for talent, companies want to go to assets that have been invested in where their workforce of the future wants to go. Light, air, infrastructure investment, these are all critical. Look, what's going to happen to all the B buildings that are in great locations that don't have the infrastructure? What, what, what are going to take them down? I, look, I, l- let's be very clear. B buildings in good locations are going to do fine as long as they're invested in. So it's a function of being able to invest in that asset um, that brings it into what we call today the future. So, and, and we're going to have plenty of that. There are assets, however, that will not make it across the finish line in today's day and age. There's going to be some obsolescence. We have property in New York now that's approaching 100 years old. Assets that have windows on two sides, don't have green space, don't have Mm. amenity space. That's going to be tough. We have to look for alternative uses. Look, one of the biggest crises facing New York in the future Mm -hmm. is affordable housing. So we need some assets to be able to be converted. My view is we have to take a comprehensive approach to looking at which ones across the board, across geographies, and find Find the way to incent the private sector to partner with the public sector to do this. Are you saying we should take some of these buildings and make them affordable housing? 
Absolutely. I'm saying we should make a part of them affordable housing. We can do that through conversion. So mm -hmm. we, we have to look at how to get the private sector incented enough, but also make enough of that asset uh, conversion so that it's not 20% or 15%, it's 25 or 30 or more percent that that is working towards solving our crisis in the future, which is making sure that the young generation has a place to, to rent. I hear you. I know Silverstein's done a few of these buildings. Are you following? Are they successful? Uh, I think they've been incredibly successful. That's great. So one one step beyond successful. Incredibly <laughs> successful. Uh, one step ahead. Okay, so we, so we we need more of this is what you're we saying. We do. Okay, we that's do. great. So let's just talk. I know that's what you said about New York, but being that you're the expert for all over, tell me about other cities. What else is happening well, in the country? I don't consider myself ex an expert all over because you well, got to live in that market every day. But, but what I would say is that that first of all, there have been too many articles now that want to say that the urban city is no longer going to be a factor, which is ridiculous. The, the urban city is where people want to go. Young people want things at their fingertips. The live, work, play concept works for them. The urban environment is the best environment that can deliver that for them. So – I think that, look, around the country, different cities are faring um, better than others. Um, crime becomes a big issue mm. in how you gauge how successful they are in the moment in time. But here's one consistent thing. People are gradually returning to New York. New York to, to work, and in particular in New York, we've crossed the threshold above 50%. Revenue put out a report yesterday, or Monday, I should say, that, that had – in the peak days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they were tracking occupancy around 70% right. or greater. That's an incredibly good sign. You know why? We're never at 100% occupancy. That's never been the benchmark, never should be. People who talk about that miss the point. The misnomer is it was 100. It was always 70 or 75. So if we're hitting those numbers now, we're just about back. Bruce, I want to kiss you. That's amazing news. So I, I'm because everybody I talked to is going to Florida. They're out of New York. So you're saying we're back at seventy percent. Everybody hear this that? Seventy percent. This, this is. We'll see if that statistic holds. The statistic that I see more often referred to is on a consistent basis, we're now over 50%. That was a statistic, I think, taken in a moment in time. So let's be careful about it. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. that's that significant and that's good news. That's good news. The, the bottom line is young people want to be with other people. They need to be mentored. You cannot grow and learn through Zoom. I, I'm a fan of technology. I'm a fan mm -hmm. of AI with guide rails, which we don't have, or guardrails, I should say. But at the end of the day, people want to be with other people. They want to socialize. They want to be mentored. Mentorship is the only way you exponentially grow your capability in this and any other industry. So which cities do you think are doing the best right now? It's a tough question. But but look, I, I live and breathe in New York. Uh, I, I We are doing incredible. Tourism is going to be back almost to where we were at the peak. Not quite, but very close. Uh, I get to see that every day with the numbers on the is, is we rely on the gate um, for our success, and, and sales have gone way up this year, um, year over year, I should say. But look, uh, other major gateway cities are on the road to recovery, some doing better than others. I rel I'm reluctant to name which ones are okay. doing better, but they're, but, but they're on the road, generally speaking, to higher occupancy and the road to recovery. Are you following the hotel vacancies and occupancies, particularly in New York? <sighs> So, look, that's not an area that I live and breathe every day. Uh, the answer is I'm aware of it because I have friends who are invested in it. And, and look, I think that it's, it's a, a slower road to recovery, but 
and and it's going to take a little bit more time because it's it's clearly and every day you benchmark where you are on an occupancy level. Uh, so it's challenging. I only mention that because of tourism. So we obviously need hotel rooms to we do to be full. We do, so, and and I think we're we're seeing that it's certainly back from the trough. So let's talk about international. I, yep. I, do you have your pulse on that? What countries are doing well, and where do you see the growth in which countries? Look, I think uh, Europe. Um, Surprisingly, I want to say, um, because the U.S. is usually led when it comes to the work ethos, but Europe was back at close to 70% occupancy before us. They're back, I think, uh, between Central Europe and um, the rest. We're, we're seeing people back at work, learning, growing, being mentored, and at the end of the day, business is functioning quite well. Geopolitics does intersect at the end of the day with macroeconomics. Can you expand on that, Bruce? Just to say that, that look, um, Europe got through the energy crisis um, and its reliance um, on one nation most significantly rather well. Maybe that was a mild winter, but also they adapted. So, you know, Europe will continue to have to adapt, have to, adapt to the circumstances. Um, and, and we all need to be aware of the fact that they're, they are uh, on the front line. Maybe not. It's it's a proxy circumstance right now, but they're still on the front line. And, and yet business is doing well. It's thriving. Growth is there. We see it in our organization. Um, and quite frankly, I think we should be at this point um, very focused on uh, the future as it relates to China and Asia. Those are things that have yet to be played out. I'm not an expert there. What I am very pleased with is that at, at this point in time, um, Europe is functioning well, U.S. is functioning well, mm-hmm. and I think that, that you know, the, the future, as much as people want to sort of say real estate is challenged, and we are challenged. Interest rates matter uh, right now. Um, obsolescence is a factor, but candidly, we're working through it, and, and I think a, a city like New York is a great example of when you can control crime, and as much as we are worried about it, we are still, we are doing better than most. So now I'm going to ask you a fun question. Sure. So, because people really are listening to this. So, because you're, you brought the company from $800 million to $2.1 billion, give the newbies and people that are listening to this some of your tricks, some of your secrets. How do you get people to take space other than tax simplifications? Just give us an idea of what you do to get a company to take space. Look, I'll, I'll take a half step back, and, and again, uh, I don't speak on behalf of the company anymore. I, mm-hmm. I'm privileged to be a part of it. But what I will say that in this moment in time when business is adjusting to a to economic adjustment, and we are, the tech sector is going through a valuation adjustment. We saw that happen in 8 and 9 in the finance sector. When those things happen, it's a huge opportunity to be a close advisor to your clients. Clients matter. And clients need help in difficult times. So what I say to our young professionals, this is a moment in time to dig in, be present, help your clients. Clients are what we thrive on. They are everything to us. And at the end of the day, provide advice. So how do we do that? We do that by having our chief economists, our our sector experts talk about what they can do uh, with their portfolios to take advantage of the moment and or to adjust to the moment, more importantly. This is a time to provide advice, counsel, and at the end of the day, a strategy for your clients. 
So in the beginning of this, we talked about artificial intelligence, and everybody talks about that. It's the buzzword. So at Cushman, do you think that the the artificial intelligence will help the commercial real estate business or hurt it? I mean, I see both sides, but will maybe it, it'll pick up because will be more. We'll need more space. Look, I, I I think like most things where you're in the um, embryonic phase, it is too soon to tell, but but clearly it will impact the business. And in some ways, as you said, positive. In other ways, it'll be challenging, but it's going to provide um, from the facility side efficiencies. It's Those are those are sorely needed. Those are, there will be pluses to that. Uh, we have to embrace it because it's coming. What I think we have to do is to develop the guardrail so that we we know that that what artificial intelligence provided is secure, safe. At the end of the day, we've see, we've had some challenges in the past with that. We need to learn from that, and and to set the guidelines. Look, it's no different than at the end of the day when the banking system um, lost the Glass Spiegel Act and um, opened itself up. At the end of the day, we found we saw. The effects of that, they were challenging. So we need the appropriate guardrails. And that doesn't mean any guardrails because Dodd-Frank was an example of guardrails, but it was unclear to banks where they really needed to keep, at the end of the day, their reserves. That lack of clarity mattered also. So this, again, one person's opinion. In this case, I think what we need to do is get ahead of AI and, and sort of set some of the standards that we, re- we require um, in order to, to sort of play in that playground. But don't you think that, I mean, dot com really helped our economy? So, it did. so don't you it, think that no the, so I think that AI is going to help the economy and help more space be rented? And what's your thoughts on that? I think that's true. I think when, when the more technology mm-hmm. is not something we should be afraid of, we should embrace mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We should embrace the fact that AI is going to create efficiencies, jobs. it's also going to create jobs. Great. So, you know, let, let's, let's get on the positive end. But again, I'll just emphasize it. Let's make sure that we have some guidance. Bruce, are you able to share some new, just I think it's exciting to hear about any great new deals that are going on in this town? Like, I know you can't say pending I, deals, but closed deals to make people inspired about this city. Look, I, I think I'm, I'm always reluctant to name names, but I think we've had a, we had a slow start to this year. And, and that's simply because as, as companies are looking at the changing economic environment, the interest rate challenges they face, the rising cost of doing business. In the beginning, in the first quarter of this year, there was a pause. Now, we've seen it before. 2021, there was a pause. In 22, with the pent-up demand, I remind people, because we forget quickly, post-COVID, we were at 35 million feet of take-up. That's at the 10-year average. That's profound. So this year, we're seeing a bit of a pause already in the second quarter. We saw some pickup. We saw some commitments made. There are a lot of big commitments and businesses looking at the moment. But they're going to be cautious and take their time understanding that this marketplace is still developing. And by that, I mean that they're, they're, this flight to quality, uh, the bifurcation is real. I think in the third quarter and fourth quarter, we'll see, I think, improvement. But we'll really see, I think, in 24, a bit of a recovery and maybe be back at that 10-year average. Now, maybe it'll be this, maybe it'll be 25. Not smart enough to know how the market will move. But we are seeing businesses take advantage of this marketplace. There are concessions that, that are out there for those folks that are willing to make the moves. And there are landlords that are doing better and better each day. So... So that's great news for New York. So you see companies looking, and you think that in 24, they'll be actually signing deals. I think we'll see commitments deals. made. 
Yes, that's, that's well, correct. We're not going to not do deals in 23, but I mm-hmm. think 23 is going to be below the 10-year average. Got I think it. we'd be you know, satisfied if we hit certain numbers that, that I'll keep to myself at the moment. But I think 24, will be, I'm hoping, will be back at the 10-year average. Got it. So what do you think that we need? We're both native New Yorkers. New yep. York has been very good to me and to to you and people that we know. In your opinion, what do you really think needs to be done to keep our luster and to keep New York fantastic so it's the best city in the world again? Look, I, I think that we are always going to have to put crime as the number one issue. It's one, two, and three in terms of controlling crime. CEOs and leaders need to know that their employees, their colleagues, their partners are safe and secure. So crime is number one. And I think we're doing better than we give ourselves credit for in this department. Secondly, for New York to continue to be at the forefront, we're going to have to invest in infrastructure. And we are doing that. The public-private partnership when it comes to infrastructure is working. Look at Penn, the Penn District. Look at what happened with Moynihan Station. That came online, on time, on budget, it's that is an incredible statement. And the Amazing. investment that's going to be made in Penn Station is going to be another public-private venture. Um, that whole area is going to be, I think, booming as the next Hudson Yards. And I think that's that's due to the investment that we are making. That's crucial. We have to invest in our infrastructure. We have to invest in the MTA. We have to do all these things because infrastructure is what will keep New York at the top of the heat. So crime, infrastructure, and I guess you're a proponent of this congestive pricing. I think it's early, right? Mm-hmm. I am I am not an expert in this, but I think that we needed a creative solution to help fund these infrastructure Mm -hmm. challenges, including the MTA, by way of example. And I think that, look, it's worked in Europe. And and so we'll have to give this some time. My view is that um, uh, I'm a supporter at this point. So, Bruce, I, I know that you know we talk about New York, we talk about other cities. I'm reading all this stuff about San Francisco and how bad it is and there's homeless people everywhere. What's really happening there? Well, though I'm not on the ground day to day, I am aware of businesses that are growing there. So, yes, we, we tend to focus on the negative, but we never seem to zero in on other things that are happening. There are businesses growing in San Francisco right now. I was on the phone with some folks who were expanding their life science business. There, there's, there's just no question that... That San Francisco is going through change, um, like many urban environments, but he's going to come out the other side. So, Bruce, let's talk about Florida. I'm hearing all these companies are leaving New York and they're going to Florida. I mean, am I supposed to sell my business business and go to Florida? You should absolutely not sell your business and go to Florida. And and let's in the true untrue theory, that's untrue. <laughs> there are wealthy people going to Florida to take advantage of, of the tax benefits. Businesses are not going in droves. Businesses are taking having a footprint in Florida, no question about that. But let's be blunt. To scale a business requires infrastructure, educational system, and and a workforce that is of size. To do that, you've got to be in New York. It's one of the things that makes New York unique. We are the financial capital of the world and the tech capital of the world. No question about that. So let's not confuse people going to Florida from businesses are leaving in droves. Absolutely untrue. Businesses are staying in New York. Businesses are expanding in New York and will continue to do so because they can scale here. This, this, the, our educational system is unique and quite frankly, so is the, the youth that want to live, work, and play in this city. But you see eight cranes on every st- – in Palm Beach, there's cranes everywhere. So you don't think that the companies are leaving New York 
and going to Florida. I think companies are taking um, what we having a foothold in Florida. They are ta- they are putting a piece of their population there, but they're doing that in many other cities outside of Florida. New York remains, as I just said and repeat again, the financial capital and tech capital of the world. That doesn't mean we should take it for granted. As I said before, essential to New York's success and if you will, ability to maintain it is controlling crime, investing in our infrastructure. Those are things that we absolutely have to do and creating affordable housing. We have to be able to make this city more affordable for young people to stay here and grow here. I, I hear you, but Bruce, if you listen to Cat's Roundtable, five hundred. And I do. <laughs> me too. Five hundred thousand people left New York in the last two years. Who and they made over a million dollars. Who's paying the bills? It's nice to say we want affordable housing, but who's going to pay the freight here? Well, so we New York has always commanded a premium to do business and to live in the city. We have to be careful about going too far. There's a fine line where business will reassess. It's not happened yet. There are businesses leaving New York. We know that. But there are also more businesses growing and staying and coming to New York. Well, I love your optimism. I I think this has been fantastic. This is good news to me. I appreciate you coming here. I think that everybody's learned a lot. And thank you for coming on the Miller Report. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Bruce. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. Bye.